Hello and welcome to another episode of Addicted to Business. This morning it is my great pleasure to welcome Mr. David Amelin to the show. Morning, David. How are you doing? Good morning, and I'm so pleased to be here. It's it's been a hectic day, and this is my release time. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely to have you on the show, David. Now, of course, before I dive into your story, I better just mention no show would be complete without my good friend and co-host, Mr. Stokely Howard. Hello, Stokely. Thank you, Nathan, for the very lovely introduction. That's okay, mate. So to the audience today, <laughs> David helps multinational clients and startups to organize their SEO and social media strategies. We're not working just like everyone else. David is a second degree black belt in Taekwondo, and I'm sure we'll dive into that within this series. But however, today, David, let's jump straight into it. We've got about 45 minutes. It's our job, Stokely and I's job, to get a maximum amount of value for our listeners. So thank you for joining us as an international speaker, (laughs) author, and business journalist. Before we dive in, I just want to know a little bit more about your journey. So where did it start? Did you go to college, university, have a few jobs, etc.? Let's go from where it started right to where we are today, just to bring everyone up to speed. Whoa, okay, okay. (laughs) I'm I'm a chemical engineer by training. I've got an MSc in quantum mechanical processes in laminar flow. For those who know what it is, essentially, it's the, electrodynam- it's the electrodynamic bonding processes of micromolecules in paint. Okay. <laughs> right. Did yeah. not know what that was. <laughs> well, essentially, you know, I used to joke about watching paint dry, but, you know, we actually used to watch paint bond and what actually <laughs> made it so. So, you know, this is what, that's my background. So I've got a scientific background. But uh, when I finished university, I sort of uh, started working for newspapers as scientific advisor, translating complex scientific um, sort of uh, facts and research into popular things for their readers. And I used to, I worked for the European back in the day. So that's Bob, Bob Maxwell, really. <laughs> so, yeah. So that's what I did. And uh, from there, in 95, I was laid off when the price of paper went sky high. Uh, lots of journalists were laid off because edit, uh, editorial copy was taking up space and ad space couldn't be made any less because that's where the money came from. Sure. And and then I joined the John Lewis Partnership around the time as a business journalist, internal communications expert. And I sort of had a really hard grounding in really hard business at the retail environment. So in a nutshell, that's what it is. You know, I've sort of written books since, but because of my technical background, search engine optimization, search engines, as soon as you know, the web became a thing, was a natural sort of dive into. And uh, I've been active ever since, since 95, actually. It's scary, thinking time is blown by. <laughs> well, I was actually born in 95, David. Don't, <laughs> don't, don't make me cry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm old for my age, don't worry. It's oh, <laughs> don't mention that word. <laughs> I, I'm sure there's much more to your journey from that point to, to here. Is there? I'm sure you've, you've done, a, done a lot more as, as well yeah. as your, your books and everything else. Yeah. Um, but you talk about, I mean, I'm going to be, I'm going to completely be honest here. You talk about a thing called semantic search mm. and I know nothing about that. <laughs> I'm sure some <laughs> of our listeners listening uh, don't know anything too. So I'm keen to understand further. Define for our listeners what is meant by semantic search. Okay, that's a brilliant question. Everybody's familiar with search and we, these days we just talk about search. But in the yeah. past it wasn't so. So if you had search in the traditional uh, world of pre-2012, um, we looked at sort of data, and whenever you put something down, machines tried to match up the data with the data that you had put in a search query, however poorly formed that was. And it made for a very imprecise kind of link up, which, uh, which required us to act as the interface that basically mm. sort of um, went through all the different answers and tried to 
quantify them and qualify them in terms of quality. Again. And that was really, really poor experience. We go today into the world of today. What do you do? You whip up your phone and you say, hey, I'm hungry. Where is the nearest pizza joint where, from where I am? Immediately machines leap into action. They find out where you are in, in terms of your location. They find out where you are in terms of your time. They check to see what time of the day it is. They check to see what kind of searches you had in the past, which will allow them to guide you towards an answer. They link all that up. They weigh up all the different connections and they give you an answer like your best friend would. If they yeah. Could. yeah. So that in a nutshell is semantic search. It is very easy to use and becoming ever easier. It's incredibly complex. In the complexity behind that, this is where we get an entire industry functioning. So the SEO industry, in a sense, is trying to make that happen in the most valuable way possible for a business and also for the person who actually accesses that business through a, a device interface. And that all that information uh, kind of is gathered in a nanosecond, right? Because it's yes. not like when you, you don't get that experience on a phone, right? We type in nearest restaurant to you and bang, it's there. And it actually yes. <laughs> that's the magic of our technology. I mean, we live in magical times. We don't, I mean, I, you know, unlike you guys, I was actually around in the 70s, but we didn't have any of this. So if you were, if you were hungry in a neighborhood, you had to take the risk. And I, you know, I was in Australia, so if you're in the wrong neighborhood, you probably end up asking the wrong people. You're going to have all sorts of interesting experiences. You say, hey, where can I get some food around here? Yeah. <laughs> we don't have that, right? Well, <laughs> people used to speak to people in those days? Like they are. They, I know, I know. It's, it's scary, isn't it, really? <laughs> or it can be. <laughs> but there you go. So that, you know, that's, that happens in a microseconds, right? You know, we're talking about incredibly fast machines. And the magic of it is that as the machine, as your phone gets to know your likes and preferences, it actually preloads stuff. So if every day at 11 o'clock, for instance, wherever you may happen to be in your country or in the neighborhood or, or wherever, you're asking for food, it begins to preload options so that when you actually ask it, it will give the most relevant ones. And so it would do things based on previous searches. How else would it gather that information, David? It, uh, again, there's a lot of talk about, okay, our, our device is listening and, and that kind of thing. And let's say, okay, I love Thai food. And now I dare say my phone's picked that up. And sure enough, at lunchtime, when I look, I'll get Thai food recipes or, or Thai food suggestions. But how else does Google mine that data to then be able to provide the most relevant answer? It's a great question. It tries to be your mother. You know, if you ask your mother about something, she, she's not listening to just what you asked of her. She knows what you like. She knows your allergies, for instance. She knows your preferences. She knows also your little quirks, like you don't like to go into a shop where people, you'll have to wait in, in a queue for, you know, 25 minutes. So she tries to guide you to the right place for you not for anybody else called Nathan. So basically, Google is trying to do the same thing. Yes, devices tend to listen in within certain parameters, obviously, and there's a safety factor in terms of privacy in that uh, context. But they're trying to gather the information that they need in order to truly become personalized devices, personalized assistants. So they try to actually all the time give us the most relevant information. The more we work with them, the more they learn, the more they learn, the more responsive they are. It sounds perfect. It is not. It is incredibly complex, lots of imperfections and lots of problems within that environment, but they're getting better. David, I'm really keen to pick your reins around Google Plus because I know you okay. wrote a book about this topic and Hangouts and things like that. I did, yes. Some yeah. of the, some, <laughs> I'm sure you're delighted to have done that. Some yeah. of the, some <laughs> yeah. of the um, Google developments seem to have really caught fire. Some seem to have really fallen by the wayside. I mm -hmm. don't know what's happened to Google Glasses. I haven't heard much about those lately but also Google Hangouts uh, and not necessarily Hangouts because I do use the Hangouts, but certainly Google Plus 
was yeah. one minute the next Facebook and all really exciting, and next minute nowhere to be seen. What do you know about Google Plus and actually what else happened to it? Well, it's interesting. It was an absolutely amazing environment in terms of um, social uh, social media platform. It had tremendous um, layers of technicalities which allowed the connection between individuals to take place at very many different places, many different layers. You could go on video, you can go on audio, you can go on chat, you can go on, on, a, on a sort of a conversation on a post and that could be quite involved. You're absolutely right. It didn't really catch on and it died two years ago when Google pulled the plug on that. But essentially the I mean, there are many reasons why products don't catch on fire. The timing could be one of them. The, the complexity of it could be another. The perceived need for it could be a third. There was a lot of resistance from the media, which sort of seemed to feed on itself. Google didn't actively seem to support it, although it did until it didn't, right? And when it didn't, it started cannibalizing, and then it became uh, its demise became inevitable. So all these factors go to show, perhaps, that you know the best isn't always what. Uh, sort of moves forward and we have Betamax in the past to actually yeah, yeah. to actually prove that right because there's a better better format but you know VHS actually caught on and where is VHS now <laughs> yeah nobody even buys CDs anymore <laughs> but you know <laughs> but you know that's 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 the way I suppose progress um, is seen and you know certainly in terms of how we use social media on the web that's evolving in itself you know we tend to avoid these days centralization even though facebook and instagram are still a thing within certain concepts um, but you know we we sort of tend to flip across and i think that's the evolution of human behavior in a digital sphere it's really interesting because you look at something like wechat out in china and actually that is like a central hub where everything happens right and yes. many chinese people rule their lives by wechat and they can do everything on it but we don't seem to have something like that over here in the uk no, I mean, initially we had Facebook when it started out, then we had Twitter, and then, you know, there was a few other platforms, and I can't even remember them now, in Britain, that sort of picked up, and then they died. Uh, MySpace, before yeah, all this I happened. Bebo, yeah, they're all... Bebo, uh... that's right, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had all those, right? And they, and, and this is, uh, again, a natural evolution. We, at least in the West, we have the mentality of enhanced individualism, we don't easily get shoehorned into a platform which will sort of contain us. We'd like to have the sensation of freedom, a sensation of choice. So um, in terms of that, we, we tend to be fecal. You know, we go to certain places, there are trends, there are fashions, and then they die off and we'll go to the next uh, shiny, whatever that may be. Yeah. So that's our behavior. That reflects our behavior in real life as well. You know, we, you know, how many of us go exclusively to only one shop to shop from? Hardly, I don't know anybody who does that. Sure. So, you know, that's, that's the sort of the narrowing of the gap, if you like, between digital behavior and physical behavior. And in, the gap used to be because there are technical constraints on how much we can express ourselves in the digital sphere. As mm -hmm. we become, as technology becomes so pervasive that the divide between digital and the re real world narrows, our behavior then expresses itself. Sure. So it's so interesting. Um, I, I want to uh, on this on the show we, we pride ourselves on, on not not sucking value out of you, David, but just giving so much value to our to our listeners. Oh, I think that's great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and I want to I want to tap into a little bit about your insight and your knowledge mm -hmm. on on the SEO world. So if you could if you could sum up for me what five things that our listeners could take from from you today that they can go today and implement that will that will help their search engine performance 
I completely understand that it's not a, it's not a quick thing, SEO. No, it, is, no, it isn't. It is not. And it you is. can't just flip a switch and then it works. Right? <laughs> oh, I so wish, right? <laughs> okay, let's let's think about this and let's make it as valuable as possible. Let's yeah. suppose that you want you have an online business. Obviously, you're invested in promoting it and getting it across to as many people as possible. Search <clears throat> yeah. is going to be your primary interface for people finding where you are quickly. So really. If we forget the technicalities and say that not everybody's technically capable, not everybody can actually afford an SEO team or somebody who actually understands SEO can and, and help you, here's what I will say you need to do. First of all, be as real as possible. Put your passion out there, put your face out there, put your location out there, put your contact details on your website. There are many websites where you go to contact details and there's a contact form. You say, what? How am I going to give them money? I don't even know who they are. Right? I don't even know if they're going to reply. So make sure you have as many of these as possible. Have as many social media profiles as possible because that's how people will actually realize where you are and link yeah. you to you as a person so they know there's a person behind the business and make sure all these are linked to your website. That's the second thing you need to do. Third thing, be as real as possible. Try to avoid the traditional business speak where we know we are a customer-centric business determined to give you the best possible customer. I mean, obviously you are that, okay? I mean, there's no <laughs> business in the world that is not customer-centric and can succeed. Right. I mean, you don't, you're not going to go in any kind of business that's going to say, oh, it's you again. Speak to the hand because I'm busy. <laughs> right. <laughs> because you won't give them your business. So, yes, we know you're customer centric. We know you want to help the customer. We know you want to also make money. These are perfectly valid things to, to put there, but put them in a human way. Right. Say so we're really concerned if we fail. If we fail, tell us how we'll try and fix it. I mean, that's very human. So yeah. try to avoid in whatever content you create, the traditional business speak, it doesn't work anymore. Point four is that essentially that we need to, order to when create content, it has to have some kind of sense. It has to make some sense for the reader yeah. as well in order for it to make sense for search. So if you're writing about, for instance, shoes one day and um, you know, used cars the next, and there's a logic there for you, inherent logic. If it's not obvious to the reader, it's not going to be obvious to search, which means the, uh, the sort of relevance of your website is going to be very hard to actually be uh, ascertained and assessed by search engines and served up. And the final thing is keep the navigation as simple as possible. I know today we go to somebody to build a website and they say, oh, you need to have some music coming in to set the mood for the visitor. You need some sort of video. You need to have, you know, this happening. Don't do any of that. People usually access it on the go um, on a mobile device. The bandwidth may be pretty low. So make sure that essentially navigation works for the visitor as quickly as possible. And if you do those five things, that will go a long way to, towards helping your search. So David, I'm interested to hear more about your recent publication in 2017, which is around the sniper mind. You talked in that about eliminating fear to make better decisions. I'm keen to understand, A, what inspired that book but also just to understand the concepts of that book more clearly, because actually so many entrepreneurs I talk to, one of their biggest fears is failure and they're constantly ruled their whole lives by fear. Yes. And this is, a, I mean, it's a great question. Essentially fear is something which is inherent in us. We keeps us alive, helps us survive. Our brains are wired to process it very quickly, which is why we can become fearful very easily. And it's also a contagious emotion, uh, much like panic for the very same reasons. In order to survive, our brains try to do the impossible thing. They try to predict the very next moment. And to do that, they have evolved over 
tens of thousands of years to biologically process signals and cues from many complex situations, which is why we have such big brain and why we have such complexity in our behavior. But let's simplify things a little bit. First of all, how the book started out. It started out as an article in Forbes. It got uh, 650,000 views within 24 hours, really, and, and tens of thousands of comments. And you know, my editor then got in touch with me and said, hey, maybe there's a book there. And usually, you know, right, when I write an article, my answer is to say, no, there isn't. But when I went deeper into the research, there really, really is a book there. So I actually saw that. Um, and then uh, that sort of became a three-year-long deep dive into neuroscience and snipers. And we're talking about snipers because they have made excellent research subjects. So we have a lot of information on how the brain works under tremendous pressure. So essentially, the, the point of the book is that, you know, if we learn to handle emotion ourselves the way that snipers do, and there are ways to do that without have actually having to go to, to sniper school, we are able to access the higher executive functioning centers of the brain better when we're under pressure, which right. allows us then to make better decisions. And if we make better decisions, then you know our business life becomes a lot easier and our, even our personal life benefits from. So I, I want to read this book, first of all. <laughs> um, Good. I'm uh, glad about that. Yeah. Uh, no, it sounds really interesting, um, um, the correlation between how, you know, a sniper's mind and how, you know, how and business. You just never think the two would come together. But, you know, clearly you've, you've made that link quite distinct. Um, I want to talk a little bit about trust. Um, mm. Trust takes years to gain and, yes. and seconds to lose, right? Same, same as reputation. Yes. Um, you have written extensively on this topic. Um, what, what three tips would you give to someone looking to quickly build trust in a sales environment? <laughs> okay, I mean, they're as easy to say as they're hard <laughs> to execute. It's more and about doing are, it, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And here's the, here we go. They are listen, empathize, respond. Okay. And you'd be surprised how few people actually do these three things. We tend not to listen. We tend to hear what we expect to hear rather than what the other person has said, which then means that we fail to empathize with them. We're projecting our own needs instead of listening and responding to their own, which then means our, our response is our response for ourselves, not them. So there you go. Then they find it hard to trust us, right? <laughs> I thought there'd be a more extensive answer on, <laughs> on that, but <laughs> I love the simplicity of it. <laughs> well, trust is fundamental. I mean, there are a lot of neurochemical stuff behind that. Every time we actually meet with a person, mirror mm. network in our brain begins to kick in, which allows us then to see not just what the, we think they see, but actually what they seem to see if we were in their shoes. So we're projecting that. And that's, that's a developed... Um, sort of skill that, you know, the, the best salespeople haven't, snipers haven't, would you believe, because it allows them to predict uh, human behavior in complex situations. Strategists have them. So right. this is the kind of thing that you actually develop. And in order to, for somebody to trust you, what must happen? They must think, they must actually feel that you feel them. And if you, they feel that, then they can predict your behavior. It doesn't matter how, what you say, and you can predict their own. We go back to how our brains work, trying to predict, to predict the next moment. Yeah. If you are unpredictable, if you're from another planet, if we have zero cultural shared experiences, if we don't have the same language, if we don't have any of the similar experiences, I will find it very difficult to actually predict what you're going to do next. It doesn't yeah. matter what you say. Yeah. It doesn't matter what we agree to. Then I will find it extremely difficult to trust you. 
Mm. And there you go. <laughs> so, so how simple is that, right? We, we tend to trust other people because we think they're other people. They're like us. So, David, the so magic sweet. kind of bullet or the magic question for me is mm. trying to understand the next bounce of the ball for the search engines and social platforms. So I appreciate it's quite difficult to know where they're going because they seem to be changing their mind or roadmap all the time. But I'm interested to know, based on your experience and your contacts and your knowledge, where do we think in the next three to five years we can expect to see platforms like Facebook and Instagram and, and search engines like Google and, and YouTube and things like that? Where do we think they're going to be going? Okay, so let's, let's, let's unpack this question a little bit. Instagram and Facebook and any uh, Apple search is another example. Any kind of walled garden does the same thing. It tries to pull as much data into its wall, keep it there, analyze it, and use that data to give you the best possible experience while you are there. The problem here, of course, is while you're there, and also in terms of who owns that data, because it's us, right? We generate it through our behavior, through our actions, through our interactions, and so on. And when the data belongs to somebody else, then we begin to some extent lose control of our lives. And Facebook is a case in point. They've experimented in the past with manipulating their users to see if they can. And the answer is yes, you can, absolutely. So is it ethical? No, it is not. Is it practically applicable? Well, yeah, and they can do all sorts of things with it. Now, if we look at the open web, which is YouTube and Google, because they tend to, to have a much bigger uh, sort of um, place, a space to play with, their role there is to become indispensable and invisible. If we think that YouTube is the second largest search engine in the world after Google, nobody thinks of it as search. They think of it as entertainment. Yeah. And we need to stop thinking of search as search. It should be something which actually helps us. Google Assistant on our phone, for instance, is search, but it's an assistant. Um, the, their, in Google Maps is a search engine, but we don't use it as such. We use it for navigation. So that's where these things are going. They're going to become invisible in the same sense that car engines today have become invisible. Again, in the 70s when I grew up, most of my friends spent half their day, half their life under a hood trying to fine tune the engine of their car because you know, cars were imperfect. And today, cars are so reliable if you buy a new car, all you have to do is just keep it full of fuel and that's it. <laughs> and it just goes. You don't have to sort of fine tune it or anything. So we think that'll be the same in the, in the web analogy. You just make sure your laptop or phone or whatever's got power and yep. the rest will just take care of itself. No, that's it, yeah. Connectivity is everywhere these days. So that actually drives everything. Mm. Um, we, I, I want to talk to you a little bit, I mean, about, about a social, social media strategy. You are okay. often discussing uh, this and, and presenting on it. Um, my business is a social and video agency. So we, uh, we you know, we use this across with all, with all our clients. But I'm interested to know from your perspective, why do so many businesses get it so horribly wrong when it comes to their social media strategy? <laughs> is it well, because it's so new or what is it? Yeah, well, first of all, you're right. It is new. So in many ways, we haven't quite got a good handle on it, although we're beginning to. But the other thing is we are afraid. Most businesses are afraid to trust their audience. So when they're messaging out there in the social web, they tend to be very rigid in the way that they can their messages and the way they control them because it gives them a sense of control in what they say. And then it only takes a small misstep, for instance, in, in perhaps a wrong sort of share or a wrong response or a wrong wrong timing in a particular message and that then appears to make them look fake or two-faced or not 100% behind their values and so on. 
The other thing, of course, is that essentially when it comes to, to social media, we tend to th still think of it as a mass broadcast channel where we have one too many, mm -hmm. like TV or newspapers. And it's not. It's actually interactive. You know, you have to have engagement. You have to have trust in your audience. You have to have a sort of a strategy that allows them to own what you put out there and make it their own. And you have to believe that they will give it the best sort of um, um, uh, process possible. And for that, you need that trust, you need that connection between them and you. And that's really hard to get. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's about, it's, it, people look at it from, I think, from a very surface level, a very business level, but it's, it's actually about the realism behind it. I'm yeah, not so yeah, much people, about, right? yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's actually, they forget the people, right? And um, yeah. that, that's definitely the most important thing is like, yeah. actually, why, what, 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 what does your client, what does your customer think? You know, yes. what, what's, how can you relate on a person level rather than just coming across like you're trying to get money from them, basically? Yeah. <laughs> and I find it fascinating because, you know, you're young and your company, you know, you, you, you grew up at a time when digital was a thing, so you actually get it. But yeah. I, I deal with people who are the CEO level and VIP, VP level. They still tend to be very much 20th century people. And to yeah. them, it's just a tool that's going to go on the balance sheet and say, you know, we spend so much and we've got this and this is where it is. And we don't understand why it doesn't work. And you say, well, it doesn't work because you're not actually working it. You're just using it. And that's yeah. wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and you're not, and a lot of people as well, from my experience, will have a social media strategy for, for one year and they go, that's a strategy for the whole year. I'm like, okay, so three months in, the world's changed. <laughs> You're not going to change it? <laughs> exactly, yes. <laughs> yeah, um, that, that, they're the common problems that, that I come across. Uh, but thank you for your insight. It's, it's so knowledgeable. So, David, my next question. I just have a crash. Okay, well, at least that point was finished. This will keep Jordan uh, running. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. We're back. You back? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah cool. So, David, my next question for you is around, uh, you wrote a piece the other day about the future of business. And I know we touched mm. on this in terms of the future of Google and how it can become seamless and search engines will just become the norm. But for those that haven't had a chance to read the article yet, please just summarize and tell us a little bit more about what the future of digital looks like for you. Well, the magic bullet for any kind of business is to be able to predict the intention of its audience. And if you can do that, it means you can satisfy it completely. Google certainly tries to do that with search, but every business is actually trying to do the same thing. And the only way you can do it really is through people, right? I mean, that's all it is. In order to understand people, what do you need to understand? You need to understand what their attitude is, what subjective norms they're operating by, and what's their perceived behavioral control. These three things. And you think, well, you know, how difficult is that? Well, it is difficult because our attitude is affected by many things. The subjective norms right now are changing as we speak. And people's perceived behavior control has undergone a fundamental change thanks to COVID and all the restrictions and the uncertainty that comes with it. So we're looking forward. These three elements, which have always been there, are what actually determines human behavior, which then determines how business will evolve. Um, so the final question for me, David, is um, from, from those who, from those that are wanting to ramp up their SEO from today, you know, they've, they've taken inspiration from this podcast. Where would you start when, when it comes to building a search strategy and plan? Whoa, okay. That's actually quite tricky. But let's keep it simple again, right? Yeah, let's yeah. say that this is what your guideline should be from now and forever. Be real. And you say, okay, how do I do that? Okay. 
be real in the copy you put out there. Be real in the promises you put on your website and the way your business operates. Be real in the way you actually handle things. And then be real in the way you present all those things on the web. And if you manage to translate that, it's going to be different for everybody. It's going to be different for a one-person business, different for a partnership of five or six people, and different from a corporation of 11,000 individuals. But if you manage to do that, what happens? You resonate with your audience. You find your audience, not anybody else's. So you're not actually competing for their attention with anybody else. And your business then has a solid basis to move on from there. And if you manage to do that, search will certainly reward you, but also you'll have a strong social media presence. And above all, you're going to have an audience. It's actually your audience and they're very enthusiastic about what you do. So yeah. that's what it is. <laughs> Simple as that. <laughs> <laughs> well, easy to say as always. Just but, doing you know, it is the main thing, right? And just yeah, not, not yeah, talking exactly. about it and just you know, executing yeah. it and actually putting some, uh, some action into it. Yeah. And that's the thing we often have this show, right? Is around pulling the trigger and getting stuff done. There's all well and good thinking about it and thinking nice, nice things, but actually you've got to pull the trigger at some point and get it going. David, it's been a huge honor to have you on the show today. Thank you so Thank much you. for joining us. It's lovely to see you. I'm glad to hear things are going so well. And for those final thing from me, for those that want to follow you, David, and understand more about you and connect with you and kind of keep up to date with everything you're posting and the books you're kind of writing, where can they do this? Well, you can find me on my website, davidamerland.com. Um, but you can just Google me and all my sort of uh, social media presence will come up. Um, thank you so much. Um, anyone who's listening to this podcast now, uh, if you've enjoyed it, uh, really helps us if you can leave a review and tell us your thoughts. Um, thanks again, David, for, uh, for joining us today. Uh, it's been thank a pleasure. You. Likewise. Thanks, thank David. you so much. Look after yourself. Thank you to those that are listening and we look forward to seeing you on the next show. Thanks again. Bye. All the best. Take care. Bye-bye.